In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with the hymn of the month. The bridegroom soon will call us. The bridegroom soon will call us, come to the wedding feast. May slumber not befall us, nor watchfulness decrease. May all our lamps be burning with oil and often more that we with him returning shall find an open door. There shall we see in glory our dear Redeemer's face, the long-awaited story of heavenly joy takes place. The patriarch shall meet us, the prophet's holy band, apostles, martyrs greet us in that celestial land. There God shall from all evil forever make us free from sin and from the devil, from all adversity, from sickness, pain, and sadness, from troubles, cares, and fears, and grant us heavenly gladness, and wipe away our tears. In that fair home shall never be silent music's voice, with hearts and lips forever, we shall in God rejoice. While angel hosts are raising with saints from great to least, a mighty hymn for praising the giver of the feast.
continue with the catechism memory work. Um, so there's a second uh, verse for bishops, pastors, and preachers from the table of duties. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Titus 1.9 Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And uh, Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. Put that there. In the um, actually, I should go there. So in this ham of the month, again, we're um, coming to the end of the church year. So the the church functions on a different time than the world, right? And it's always most evident during this time of the year that right around this time of the year uh, in November. Right. So if we if we put up November here, November and well, let's say December down here. Um, the church, what's the church doing? The church is wrapping up its uh, year, right? We're coming to the end of the year. We're thinking about the end of the world, right? We're thinking about um, the last day when Jesus is going to come back again. And in November, what's the world doing, right? The world uh, has, it seems like it's <laughs> getting, um, it, it actually changes year. It seems like uh, it used to be that the, um, it used to be that November there was, it was a lot more fall at least, it seemed to me. Now it's like um, after after Halloween, then it immediately turns to, towards Christmas, right? Um, but there is still some, and, and Thanksgiving is this overlap, right, where we do both, both the church and the, the world celebrate Thanksgiving. But um, the world's already moved on, for the most part, to what they just call now the holidays, right, which is supposed to include Thanksgiving and Christmas, and uh, but it's also supposed to include non-Christian holidays too, like you know, Hanukkah or whatever, um, because we're supposed to be very inclusive, right? Um, 
but it's all just kind of aesthetic. It's just, you know, red and green colors and uh, things with snow on them and, and certain flavors at the, at the coffee shop, things like that, right? Um, but very kind of contrasting, I think, right? And then what's the other big thing that the world cares about in November? Black Friday. <laughs> that's what that's what people care about, right? So so we're thinking about. I mean, and I and I you know it's that by the way I'm not saying I don't buy things on Black Friday. I mean that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with getting a good deal, but it is very contrasting, right? Like we're thinking about how all of this is going to be destroyed by moth and rust, and then everyone else is trying to collect as many things as possible, right? So. Um, very contrasting thing here. And then de- December, right, is, uh, I mean, more or less, depends on how the church here falls. But this is Advent for us, right? This is a new beginning. This is hope. This is a new year, right? And then on the on the world side of things, right, this is the end of the year. Right? And even if you think about Christmas as a as a Christian holiday, uh, Christmas for us, right, is it's all about, I mean, as they say, keep the, the Christ in Christmas, right? It's all about Jesus, right? It's all about the incarnation. It's all about God taking on human flesh, um, right? It's all about Christ. But for the world, what's Christmas really about, right? Again, it's about the, about the presence, about the the stuff, if you will, right? And, um, you know, if you get into New Year, right, uh, our New Year's already happened when the world's having its New Year, and the world's New Year is generally about, you know, partying and about self-improvement. And, um, yeah, it's just a, it's always very contrasting this time of year, it seems to me. And, um, Anyway, it's good to sing these hymns, these uh, end times hymns, because the end times hymns, they keep us honest, right? They keep us honest with what's going on, with what time we're on. And uh, this is this is the whole thing in this hymn, right, is that there's the, the time is near, right? The bridegroom soon will call us. Come to the fetting weast. May slumber not befall us, nor watchfulness decrease. May all our lamps be burning with oil enough and more, that we with him returning may find an open door. Right. Um, and even in stanza two, right? There, there shall we see his glory, our great Redeemer's face. The long-awaited story of heavenly joy takes place, right? So we're this... this um, Whenever Christ comes again and and the last day comes, that we will see our Redeemer's face and we will be with the patriarchs and with the prophets and the apostles and the martyrs in this celestial land. And that that is a long, a thing we've been waiting for a long time that's now come, right? It's, it's now come. So um, it keeps us honest about the time, right? Because no one knows the day or the hour, but... We, we always have to be ready for it, right? I mean, Jesus could come again in five minutes. He could come again in five hours. He could come again in five days and five months and five years. And 
50 years or 500 years. We don't really know, but um, he could come again at any time, and we have to be ready. So I like these end times hymns for, for that reason. All right. Um, in the catechism memory work, again, we got the table of duties. This, yeah, Steve. Uh, one question. What is the first day of Christmas, especially in the song? You know, I know it runs through Epiphany. So is it Christmas Eve? Uh, yeah, I got to think about that. Let's see. J- January 6th is Epiphany, right? So you have, um, I think it's the first day of Christmas is Christmas. So you have 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, and then Six. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 would be 12. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's Christmas Day through through January 5th. Right. And then January 6th is, is Epiphany. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the, I mean, it used to be that, and we don't do this either, um, but it used to be that people would put not put up their Christmas trees until Christmas Eve, right? And then you, dec- you that was the, what you did on Christmas Eve was you put up the tree and you decorate it, right? And then um, and take it down like on January 5th or whatever, but. Yeah, then if you want to buy stuff, it's all outside. That's right. <laughs> that's, see. Now you're thinking. Um, yeah, but but now everyone puts up their Christmas trees, you know. It and I, I I've seen this change in my lifetime, right? It used to be that so it the I, I just happen to know that the old tradition was you put it up on Christmas Eve, but while I've grown up it it was always the day after Thanksgiving. But now it's like, you know, people prob- there's probably a substantial portion of the American population that already has their trees up, right? So, it's uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, there's no law about these things in Scripture, right? Um, but it is interesting, right? It is interesting the way that the world's time and the church's time uh, contradict or, or I shouldn't say contradict, contrast each other. All right, and we and there is a sense in which we live in both, right? And we have to we have to balance that. Alright. In this catechism memory work, the uh, table of duties, so this, basically this chart that Luther puts in the catechism of Bible verses to go with different vocations. Uh, The second one he puts in for bishops, pastors, and preachers is that Titus 1.9, he must firmly hold to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And um, this this really is the in one way the central thing to being a pastor is that that what the pastors do for the church um, maybe above all else if you think about the pastor's main job being teaching and preaching is preserve the doctrine in the church right now that's not to say that. Um, Lay people don't also have a responsibility in preserving good doctrine, but um, that in order to be a true shepherd, right, the thing that distinguishes true shepherds and false shepherds is the sound doctrine, right? And the doctrine that this is the other thing about doctrine is that doctrine sounds like such a boring thing, right? Doctrine, when we think about, I mean, the, the old school term for studying doctrine 
in the church is what's called dogmatics. Right? If you've ever heard that term before. Mm-hmm. But you, you've probably heard the term like someone is dogmatic about something. And we think of that as like a negative thing, right? That someone is like they won't let go of this opinion, right? Or they, they're, they're, um, they're not willing to debate about it or whatever. That's kind of how dogmatic is used today. Someone's too dogmatic about something. Um, but this is important in the church that the pastors and that those who study the scriptures are dogmatic, right? That we, that we, one, organize the scriptures in a way that makes sense and think about what they mean, right, and then believe what they say. But the other thing about doctrine is this, right, when we, we think about doctrine as kind of this boring, dogmatic su- study, right, um, where it's just like, what's the list of things that you believe? Like, so Lutherans believe in the real presence, but Baptists don't or something like that. Um Notice what Paul says here to Titus. He says, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. And this is the thing about doctrine is that the doctrine's not boring. Doctrine is actually living, right? Because these beliefs that we have about what the Bible teaches, these are beliefs that are from the living word of God. And if the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword and able to divide bone and marrow then so are the things that come from it, right? So are the beliefs, right? So, um, for instance, right, part of our dogmatics is that just like we were talking about with Christmas, kind of looking forward to that, part of our dogmatics is that God took on human flesh. That's comforting, right? It is comforting that the creator of the universe came and wore the flesh that we wear so that he could save us from our sins, right? That every temptation we experience, Christ experienced, yet without sin. So it's, uh, there, are, there are things, there are, and, and this is true with any doctrine, that when we're honest about the doctrine, right? Or even the doctrine of the end times, we talked about this last week, that the fact that Jesus is gonna come again to judge the living and the dead, that sounds like a scary thing in some ways, but it doesn't need to be. It's a comforting thing, right? So um, I think this is uh, an, an important thing to recognize is that in this verse, uh, and, and also notice that the pastors are supposed to use doctrine to refute those who oppose it, that the main tool in the toolbox of a pastor, of a good Christian pastor, is sound doctrine, right? And I think... The modern church has gotten away from that to some degree, right? Um, I think a, a lot of people think about when they think about pastors, um, and I'm not I'm not discounting this. There is a, an importance to some of this as well, but uh, they when modern people think about what makes a good pastor, I, I bet if you just went and asked people on the street, if you ask people on the street, are you Christian? And if they and if, and then if they said yes, if you ask them, what do you want in a pastor? They'd probably start saying, well, that he's personable, right? That he's charismatic, that he's uh, kind and caring, right? That he doesn't offend a lot of people, right? That he's fun and yeah, that he's interesting, has good, ho- cool hobbies. Like, um, that's that's probably what people would think. It would probably take a little bit down the list to say that he believes the right things, <laughs> right? Um, 
Now, I will say, if you go to 1 Timothy 3 and look at the qualifications for being a pastor, there are things that are not just doctrine, right? So that's not the only thing that matters, right? There's um, that he's honest, that he can manage his own family, that he's able to teach, right? These types of things. So um, some of those things are true. So I don't want to discount those, but um, that this is also very important, right? <laughs> that the guy actually believes the right things and uses those beliefs to comfort and to rebuke. All right. So yeah, go ahead. It's funny. I was listening to a brief history of power yesterday while I was working, and they talked about that's one of the very subjects that they talk about when they're evangelicalism and the the uh, how it has become more about uh, since I think he was saying since the. 50s and 60s, it's become more about the pastor being, you know, uh, a relevant guy. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of an interesting. There's a whole lot to it. Yeah. So that's a that's a podcast that's run by some Lutheran pastors that both Chad and I and I think Steve listens to. Um, and I remember that now. And and w- one of the points they're making is that non-denominational is in some ways more dangerous than so sometimes we just say like oh non-denominational churches around here are basically baptist churches that's true to an extent but the thing with non-denominational churches um and i'm not saying this about any specific church or pastor by the way but the thing with this idea of non-denominational is actually really dangerous because at least with the if you're a southern baptist church you expect the pastor to be Southern Baptist, right? To actually believe that. With non-denominational church, there's no standard, right? They can believe whatever they want, right? And so there are non-denominational churches today. Um, I don't think any in our area, but maybe, I don't know, uh, that are like really random, like whole, like the pastors or whatever, like hold the really random old heresies, like anti-Trinitarian heresies, um, just weird stuff. So anyway, that's kind of beside the point, but it's a well, it, interesting topic. It applies to what the pastor, what the pastor does, what he is. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, the the reason the pastor is important, like I'm not trying to um, talk about myself too much or anything, but like. If if people are honest with themselves, right, the the pastor is the the face of the congregation, right? So if if the pastor holds to certain doctrines, like there is a right way in which we could say that's what the church holds to, even if that's not what every member of the church holds to, right? But if the pastor is the face of the congregation, and if the pastor holds the false doctrine, then in that sense, that church holds the false doctrine, right? So yeah, Steve. Also, a church that just rallies because they love that particular pastor when he retires, dies, or just moves on. Oh, yeah. Then the congregation... Yeah, that's a whole nother problem. Yeah, they renamed their church, you know, like across the street. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. Like, um, that's the good thing about being, again, being part of a confessional church where we have a set of confessions that every pastor in that denomination has to hold to these confessions 
because then it's like, okay, it doesn't matter if, you know, if I get in a car accident on the way home, you guys can get another pastor who's going to believe all the same things I believe, right? And um, that's good right, for the sustainability of the church. All right. Um, that's enough about all that. All right, let's get back into Jeremiah. We're, we've uh, spent too much time on these other things. All right. So uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, verses, uh, we're in key passages of Jeremiah. Um, I'm not going to go back through the main themes and whatnot. We need to try and hammer through some of these key passages. So they'll come back up as, as, we, as we go through them. We did chapters 1 and 7 uh, so far. We're going to go to chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. All right, and I'll go ahead and read this. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have you provoked me to anger with their carved images, with foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? All right, so um, what, what's going on here is that this is uh, lament. So this is Jeremiah mourning, right? And we've talked about this idea of lament before where this is a lament is a certain kind of prayer. It's a prayer when someone is honest with God about the sadness and the suffering that they are experiencing. And Jeremiah is lamenting, he's being honest with God about the sorrow and the cries that are in Judah. And he's being honest about the suffering he feels when they've provoked him to anger with their carved images and their foreign idols, right? And what does he cry out for in this lament? He cries out for a Messiah, right? And uh, the Messiah and lament are in some ways uniquely connected, right? Jesus himself is known to lament, right? He often goes off in quiet prayer. He, at the Garden of Gethsemane, right, cries out, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. Right, And then ultimately on the cross, what does he pray in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, And so lament and the Messiah are kind of uniquely connected in this way that Jesus himself is a lamenter. Right? And you can almost even hear Jesus speaking some of these words Right, when, he said, when, when Jeremiah says, for instance, the daughter of my people, I am hurt. Right? This, is how, this is how Jesus feels when his people... Uh, Right, uh, turn against him. Right, and he and he prays for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right, um, and they and these are his people. Right, these are the the cho- this is the chosen tribe. Right, the chosen race, and um, but especially that verse twenty two. 
right? Jeremiah is crying out for a Messiah, right? And and he um, he uses this language of sickness, right? Is there no balm in Gilead, right? So it's like they have a wound that needs balm, and there's but there's no balm to be found, right? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? And so this uh, this term, interestingly, in church history uh, has become this balm in Gilead, right? This is kind of a messianic term, right? So uh, there's a hymn, uh, and I think some of the other prophets use this as well, right? The balm in Gilead. Uh, there's a hymn, there is a balm in Gilead. We've sang that. Yeah. There is a balm in Gilead, something like that. I don't really know the hymn that well, but anyway. Um, so that's a, this is kind of a messianic lament, and um, we get that balm and Gilead language. So kind of interesting. All right. So a balm yeah. is like a healing ointment? Yeah. 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 Um, if you want a really good balm, there's one. They sell it on Amazon. Uh, there's this Amish one called it's a chickweed salve it's made out of chickweed and then it's got like comfrey and some other herbs in it and stuff uh and we use that for bug bites and it's amazing right it makes the itching just instantly go away so um yeah look up look up amish chickweed salve on amazon that's a that's a balm okay that's your free life advice for the day all right um yeah or if you're chad you can make your own but I've never figured out how to do that. All right, next uh, next key passage, chapter 18. That's a very poor eight. Chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 11. Right. And this will be somewhat familiar, I think. All right, the word of the... The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Notice there we have again the enacted word, right? So there's going to be this prophecy about the potter and the clay. But where does Jeremiah go to hear and to preach the prophecy? To the potter's house, right? So just like in chapter 7 when he went to the temple to preach the temple sermon, right? He's going to go to the potter's house uh, to preach uh, the the Potter sermon, if you will, right? Um, what did that make me think of? Oh, yeah, I was uh, so in at Oxford today. I'm starting a new Bible study on the Gospel of Mark, and there's this um, you know thing in chapter one about John the Baptist wearing. Uh, wearing camel's hair and eating locust and wild honey, right? And uh, th- this is this is common among the prophets, right? Not not the specific things, right? Not the specific things that they do, right? So John's the only one who wears camel's hair and eats locust and wild honey. Jeremiah's the only one who goes to the potter's house. But the prophets commonly will like act out or um, kind of, yeah, like I guess act out is the best way to say it. Act out these certain things in their life with the way that they dress, with where they go, with the setting in which they preach. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, 
I mean, I don't know what the contemporary application of that is. Like, you do, you have, I'm, I'm very much against this, uh, but you do have pastors who will, you know, come out of the pulpit and walk around the sanctuary when they preach and stuff like that. And uh, it just seems like kind of fake to me. Uh, I don't know. Like, I like, I'm a traditional guy. I like the pulpit. It's the traditional way people preach. But I, I will say, um, I think the Old Testament prophets would be preaching out of the pulpits. <laughs> They'd be walking around doing crazy things. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, I think a lot of that happens because people will sit toward the back of the sanctuary. Yeah. You know? I've actually seen them take their little stand and go out there. Yeah, that's right. The you got to keep getting going to, toward the people. Um, well, yeah. Church, our people wouldn't be here because the people that can't hear very good sit in the back. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's all good. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the contemporary application of this is, uh, but um, I think maybe it's something that. Yeah, I think it's something that ended with the Old Testament, because in the in the New Testament they're not being that weird. Um, but the Old Testament prophets are kind of weird. They're just doing crazy things. So, anyhow, uh, so that's the enacted word. Okay, let's keep going. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Right, and so this is part of the vision, right, is that the uh, the current Judah is is marred, right? And, and so he has to remake it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel... Can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up the pole town and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation concerning a kingdom to build up and to plant it, If it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. All right, so um, the thing that I think is very telling about the image of the potter and the clay with God and his people is that destruction is something that can happen very quickly and very easily, right? If you have a lump of, of soft clay and it needs to be destroyed, right? It's, it's marred. It's not shaping the way you want it to shape. What does the, the potter do? Right? He just smashes it. I mean, it, it takes like Three seconds, probably. You know, just he's trying to build a little pot or whatever, and just it's not working out. Poof, you know, smash, right? It's completely formed back into its little ball, right? If, however, you're trying to make something perfect, right? If you're trying to, to build something, you're trying to build the pot, right? How long does that take? That part takes time, right? And this is something that's just true in the church and, and, and uh, is a true way we think about the church and, and about 
God's, God's people over time is that it's a fragile thing, right? A church can be destroyed very easily. Like if I... <laughs> If if I was a wicked man, right, and I just wanted to like blow this church up, not literally, but like figuratively, like cause a lot of problems in the church, it would be super easy, right? Like it's super easy to gossip, it's super easy to cause problems, um, it's super like it's, it, I mean, it's super easy to have money troubles in a church, um, and it's it's easy to lead a church away to false to false gods and to false idols. Right, and this is what happened in Judah. Um, it's very hard to build up a church, right? It's very hard to sustain something, um, and to and to grow and to grow it and to form it, right? And um, but this is why we're we're called the patience, right? And this is why we have to recognize that God is our Potter, right? And so notice, like the two things, He doesn't say like you're the you're the Potter, I'm the clay. And or you're you're the clay, I'm the potter, and um, he says I can destroy it, right? But then when he says uh, that you know the opposite of destruction, what's the opposite of destruction? The opposite of destruction isn't just that he's gonna like just instantly make this new beautiful pot or whatever. His the the opposite of the destruction is that he's he's not going to destroy it, right? That's the opposite is that he's going to relent of the disaster, right? And he's going to allow this pot to continue to be formed, right? Yeah, go ahead. This kind of reminds me of when God created man and he made him perfect. Mm -hmm. And we got all messed up. And then Jesus had to come to kind of smash us all back and and make us wrong. Yeah, no, that's that's correct. And, And in one sense, we all do need to be destroyed, right? So... Um, when we think about the Christian life, we think about death and resurrection, right? And so, uh, and, and, and a kind of a complete change, right? So Ezekiel talks about it this way. He says that God removes our hearts of stone and puts in us a heart of flesh, right? So that, um, there's a sense in which the, if you want to mix metaphors here, the clay has become dried up in our hearts, Right, and it needs to be thrown out, and then God forms a new moldable clay in our hearts. Right, so this is true on the individual level as well. But um, th- I find this to be a very helpful image uh, for thinking about about the about the church and about God's people, and and how God deals with us. Right, and really how fragile we are, and how easy sin can take us over. Chad, did you have something? Oh, I thought you had your hand up earlier. Okay. All right, um, moving on then. We're just going to try and hammer away through these here. We got chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. And if you want, at some point, I can um, give you the outline that we had a couple weeks ago. But this is kind of one passage from each major part of the outline. Um Jeremiah is a very long book, obviously, but it's also very sporadic, and so we have a lot of different passages here. But uh, 23 is this um, theme about the false shepherds, right, the false prophets. This is a big theme in Jeremiah. And then that's kind of contrasted um, with 
with the real shepherd um, and Jeremiah mixes metaphors as the prophets are wont to do and he calls the real shepherd this righteous branch so bringing in that agricultural language that he likes to use right so um, we talked about that agricultural metaphor that Jeremiah likes of uprooting and then planting anew right and you heard it you you heard it just a second ago in Jeremiah 18 right that he can um, I think he talked about planting there even when he was talking about the pot if I remember yeah so verse 9 um, from 18 just going back a second and the instant I speak concerning a nation concerning a kingdom to build it and to plant it right so um, Jeremiah likes to mix metaphors, but the, the prophets in general like to mix metaphors, which is fun. All right, so um, chapter 23, false prophets versus the real shepherd, the righteous branch. Uh, let me read this here. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. Okay, so before we move on, the danger of false shepherds, of false prophets is great. And it's interesting here that Jeremiah calls them out because the um, when you read through the, the Kings and the Chronicles, right, and you read through the other prophets, uh, sometimes you could get the sense that you know the people are wicked and the kings are wicked, but the prophets are generally the ones who are trying to to save everyone, right? The prophets are the ones who are trying to help. But Jeremiah here is very clear, and the other prophets are too. When you read closely, that not only are the kings bad and the people bad, but the priests and the some not all of them, but some of the priests and some of the prophets are pretty bad too. Right. And in fact, that's even worse because they're leading the sheep astray. Right. And and what does he say? Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings. Right. And this is we get this in the New Testament, too. Right. That the teachers of the church are judged more strictly. Right. Um, all right. Verse three. But I will gather the remnant of my flock and we get um, Jeremiah isn't huge on this. But we do get some of this remnant language has has been true in some of the other prophets as well. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And notice it's not just Judah there either, right? It's out of all the countries, right? So the Gentile mission is partly in view here. And bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. So notice um, he is going to get to this righteous branch and to the real shepherd, but um, he does say that there will be shepherds, right? And this is always true that um, Jesus is the true shepherd, right, of the sheep, but sometimes you'll hear pastors referred to in theology as under shepherds right so there's the one true shepherd and then there's the under shepherds right so i'm an under shepherd i'm not the shepherd 
but I am a shepherd and I'm an under shepherd of the one true shepherd, right? So that Jesus does provide uh, more pastors than just himself, right? He's the ultimate pastor. That's what the word pastor and comes from, by the way. So uh, if you read through the New Testament, you won't see the word pastor a lot, even though that's our most common term for people in the office of the ministry. But the word pastor is Latin for shepherd, right? So that's where we get that. All right. Uh, Who will feed them and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Okay, so we get this huge messianic prophecy here, right, um, that... The king is coming. The righteous branch is coming, right? And um, you, you notice here, you almost get all three offices of Christ mashed into this prophecy, right? So you get um, prophet, right, in that this idea of shepherd. You get priest in this idea of the righteous branch or the righteousness, right? And then you get king in that he says a king shall reign and prosper, right? To execute judgment in the earth. And so you have prophet, priest, and king. This is uh, the Christ, right? The Lord, our righteousness. And that, and notice here, you, you also get the atonement in view. That the Lord, this Lord, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will be our righteousness. That's his name, right? That he becomes our righteousness for us, right? His righteousness is imputed to us or given to us, right? So it's uh, quite the prophecy here. All right, any questions on, on 23? All right. Um, let's move on to 25, and I didn't write down verses for this because I decided to add it later on, so i got to figure out what verses I want to read here real quick. Um, I think probably start at 25. So he prophesied the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. But the thing I want to focus on here is that he pictures that 70 years as a cup of wrath, right? And uh, Jesus picks up on this quite a bit in the New Testament. So oh, I, I still got some room left here. All right, I'm, I'm going to read starting at verse 15 and then I might skip ahead. For thus says the Lord, this is chapter 25, 
For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand, or wrath, and cause all the nations whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, a curse, as it is to this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, all his people, all the kings of the land of Uz and all the kings of the land of the Philistines and so on and so forth, all the kings of Tyre and Moab, so on and so forth. Okay, so basically he's going to make all the nations drink this cup of wrath, this cup of wine from the Lord. And then I'm going to go down to verse 27. Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord the host, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I am sending among you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup of your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity upon the city which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished. For I will call a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. All right, so um, the image here is that the Lord has a cup of wrath that's wine, and he's going to make Judah and then all the nations drink of it until they're drunk with the wrath of the Lord, right, until they're completely destroyed. And it's kind of an odd image, but it is... Uh, the image that Jesus picks up on very often when he talks about the wrath of the Lord, right? He asked the, dis- the disciples, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, right? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And what he's talking about there is the wrath that he's going to experience on the cross, right? That he drinks the cup of wrath to the dregs on the cross. Um, and this this image of drink, be drunk, and vomit, Right? Fall and rise no more, right? Because of the sword that I send among you. And so this is the cup of wrath. Uh, the ultimate cup of wrath is the cup that that Christ drinks, right? And this is we already mentioned it earlier, right? Lord, if you will take this cup from me, that's the cup that that Jesus is thinking about. Now there's a great reversal of this, of course, in the Lord's Supper, right? That Jesus takes the cup of wrath, and he turns that cup of wrath, right? He sheds his blood on the cross, and he takes that uh, cup of wrath and turns it into a cup of righteousness and then gives it to his people, right? So uh, while he's drinking the cup of wrath, he's simultaneously pouring out his blood for the people to drink, right? So it's quite this great reversal that happens uh, with the cup of wrath. So I wanted to... Um, bring that up and then you get I mean you get this imagery in the Old Testament too right so um, Psalm uh, in Psalm 23 right what's uh, the cup language there that uh, let me uh, make sure I you have you have prepared uh, a table before me in the presence of mine enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup runneth over and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, right? So that the cup, we can, there's two cups of the Lord, right? There's the cup of wrath and the cup of grace, the cup of mercy. 
and and he fills up the cup of mercy and gives it to us and, and pours out the wrath on on his son right so uh dang it i lost my there we go okay. all right that's cup of wrath that's chapter 25 all right that's uh, that's about time um next time we'll pick up with uh chapter 26 verses 1 through 24 and we're going to talk about jeremiah's own kind of experience as a martyr all right any final questions or comments yeah the uh, a couple of disciples i don't know i can't remember who it was but they were thinking that they could take the cup of of wrath that jesus had and of course he says that you don't understand right. what the cup is. Yeah, that's um let's see, is that Peter and, and James or James and John? Um Yeah, they they want to sit at the, the right and left hand and um and they 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 ask to drink the cup and, and they don't, yeah, they don't understand, right? And this is um I could talk a lot about this because I was thinking about this a lot with it, preparing for this Mark Bible study. But I don't think that the disciples really understand who Jesus is. I think they think he's the Messiah, but I don't think that they think he's the son of God. And I don't think that they think that he's going to save the world in the way that he is going to save the world. They think he's going to become this great king, right? And that's what they're looking for. And um, the fact that he saves by meekness and by taking on the wrath of God and by being himself the very son of God, that is a surprise to them. And... uh, Yeah, they really don't. I mean, Peter... Like, there's glimpses of it, right? So um, Peter finally gets it in Matthew 16 when he says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. But then, like, Peter is so fickle. And he, you know, he goes on to to basically say, you're Christ, the son of the living God, but, you know, we don't want you to save the world the way you want to save the world. We don't want you to go to the cross. And by the way, when you go to the cross, I'm going to deny that I ever knew you, right? So... Um, Peter's pretty fickle in that way, but uh, yeah, it's so it's funny that there's a, a pastor. I, I heard a sermon um, up when I was in Wisconsin, and uh, the the pastor was preaching on that text, and he said it would be a great joke if we got to heaven. And um, is it James and John that that said that? Yeah, I think it is. Anyway, it would be a great joke if we got to heaven, and that's actually who was at the right and left hand. <laughs> Um, that that Jesus, you know, he he basically didn't promise them anything, right? Uh, there and so we don't really know. I mean, it's possible he could actually do that, well, right? He did promise but, them one thing. He promised that they would that they would uh, suffer. Right. So uh, anyway, that would be a good joke, though, if we got there and. And that's actually where they were. All right. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, 
We thank you that you have given us your cup of mercy, and we pray that you would bless today our worship as we receive your word and your sacrament, that it would be to our good and to our blessing and and not to our harm. Uh, We pray that you would continue to preserve your word here in this church, and we pray that you would continue to bless this church with your mercy. We pray this all through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.